Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, my name is Peter Rydell from the University of Chicago, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Paolo Kami from Cleveland Clinic. And today we'll be discussing selecting and sequencing CD19-targeted therapies in relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And specifically for this section, we'll be focusing on therapy beyond the second line. And so I'll start by just presenting a case uh, to you, Dr. Kami, uh, and then we can kind of discuss how you would approach it. So my patient's a 76-year-old gentleman who presents to medical attention with some right neck swelling. He has a past medical history significant for atrial fibrillation, hypertension, hypothyroidism, and some reflux. Additionally, and pertinent to note, he also does, in terms of his social history, have a wife who's currently suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and he's her primary caregiver. And the patient lives approximately three hours from a major medical center. On physical exam, he has a palpable mass in his right neck, and his performance status is 1. Some pertinent labs include an elevated LDH, and his IPI score is 4, consistent with high-risk disease. His PET imaging shows multi-station adenopathy, including involvements both above and below the diaphragm. And he undergoes a biopsy of his right cervical lymph node, which reveals evidence of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, non-germinal center type, and his FISH analysis is negative for MYC, BCL2, and BCL6. And so initially, this patient's treated with standard of care therapy with six cycles of RCHOP, and his end-of-treatment imaging unfortunately reveals some persistent disease in his left inguinal region. He then undergoes a biopsy, which confirms persistent disease, and he's then treated with a couple cycles of Argemox, with unfortunately some residual disease persistent after that. At this point in time, he still has a preserved performance status at one. And so my question for you is, is, you know, we have a 76-year-old gentleman now who's failed two prior lines of therapy. Uh, and, and how would you kind of approach management in this patient? Well, I think that um, I think the case that you described is not a uncommon presentation, um, something that we need to approach in, in our clinical practice. I think you're seeing a patient with chemorefractory disease who's shown not to respond to first and second line therapy. Um, I think somebody who's failed the first line therapy, you already know they're going to have difficulties in, in responding to a subsequent line. And I think that's where now we'll discuss in a separate and separate episode what to do for a patient at that stage. But I think somebody who's a third line with chemorefractory disease, you, I think switching modalities is reasonable. Moving on to immunotherapy would be the, the best choice. I think if I could offer him CAR-T's um, would be probably my, my preferred method uh, of treating a patient like this. However, there's some pitfalls, I think, included in the in the description of the case that make it a little bit hard to administer. And I think that's why not every patient that's eligible for CAR-T's receive CAR-T's, I think, because A, access is far away from the center. Mm-hmm. B, his patient care, his caregiver availability uh, seems to be limited with uh, having to care for uh, 
white with Alzheimer's. So I think in that scenario, I think choosing for alternatives would be probably what I would go for. I think uh, of the options that you present there, you know, definitely I think the, the, the two preferred choices for me would be either longcastuximab testing, something that's been used in patients with refractory disease, mm -hmm. uh, and inclusive, including the treatment, um, but also consider polatuzumab, rituximab, and mendamastine, uh, also included patients with uh, high-risk disease, although not all were refractory in the trial. Um, I think that the one limitation probably uh, will be the travel to back and forth to a center. So I think that would probably be a limitation for including patients with tafacidamide treatment with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are very good points. And I, I certainly think, you know, to, to echo your sentiment, it, it, CAR T-cell therapy is uh, a very impactful therapy in patients in the third line setting. Uh, we now have, you know, data, mature data from, from three trials, the Juliet uh, Transcend and Zuma-1 study demonstrating CAR-T's efficacy in that setting. But yeah, absolutely. In this case, there there are some impairments that, you know that that um, preclude that therapy likely for this patient given the distance and so forth. Um, so I think you know the, the options that you outlined are are really reasonable. Um, a lot of times in my clinical practice, you know, because none of these therapies have really been compared head to head, um, it is sometimes challenging for us to figure out what is always the best treatment for for each patient. And so in many of these situations, it is individualized. And I think the points that you raised in terms of logistics um, really are probably going to be one of the, the things that is going to um, dictate which, which therapy might be the best for this patient. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Zilanta or Lankastuximab tesserine uh, is every three-week infusion, and so that does, um, you know, provide some convenience factor to, to this patient that has, you know, some caregiver needs, uh, along with uh, BR Pola, also provided on an every four-week basis, is, is another very reasonable option. Um, and then, you know, for the, for the reasons that you mentioned, I think probably tafacitamide and lenalidomide might be uh, not the preferred choice in this setting just because there's not a lot of data to back, um, you know, its utilization in patients with primary refractory disease. I agree. I think logistics will be probably the predominant thing. Uh, eligibility will be the other one. Certainly, tafacitamide and lenalidomide has a very frequent infusion schedule, which is the additional limitation. I think that you know, the, at the point of the third line, the choice of treatment will also be will also be impacted by the adverse events. You you would expect that somebody who's gotten six cycles of Archop and two cycles of Gemox will have a little bit of a higher risk of neuropathy, or will have had other side effects that will make you choose one or the other. The remaining options of either Pola BR. Uh, or longcastuximab testing, uh, whether you would choose somebody who has no neuropathy uh, for more getting longca, somebody who has other other comorbidities to choose, maybe polabr, uh, also for the schedule hematologic toxicity as well. Absolutely, and you know one of the other things I always think about when I'm determining therapy in, in patients in this setting is kind of what's the pace of their disease and and how urgently they may need a response. Um, you know, in, in patients that have failed two prior regimens, a lot of times they can be very symptomatic. And so trying to, to choose a therapy that has a short time to response is also something important. Um, and, you know, we, ha we have data to support that with BR Pola along with uh, Lanka T, where uh, generally responses are relatively early on. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's one of the, you know, besides the 
besides the limitations of logistics for CAR-Ts is the, the time to treatment uh, and what to bridge them with. Many people are using some polatuzumab containing agent, maybe not always with, uh, with the addition of bendamustine, but I think uh, understanding what you can give a patient before CAR-T or understanding that a patient that is rapidly progressing may preferably be treated with something else, like you mentioned, uh, and to control the disease and subsequently maybe consider CAR-Ts would be a reasonable option as well. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly in this case, if this patient were to, uh, you know, receive next-line therapy in the third-line setting and then, you know, not fare well with that, then if things were to change, CAR-T could certainly be an option in the future. If uh, you know, logistics were to be uh, improved if you were to be able to get caregiver support or, or other things like that. So um, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Fully agree. I think in a patient who has the capacity to access CAR-Ts would be my choice. Uh, if I had somebody of the same age, I probably, you know, seems to be somebody who has some comorbidities. If I was able to give CAR-Ts in that scenario, I would probably prefer lysocaptogenesilol, isocaptogene for, for treatment, mm -hmm. whereas if as a younger patient uh, with more tolerability of adverse events or probably at that, at that point, we choose oxycaptogene. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for all your insight and thoughts, Dr. Kamey. This has been a, a great session, and I appreciate the audience's time and attention. Take care. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.